Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles, and I am the master chef, cooking you up something succulent and divine. It's your boys out here, and we are serving hot talk and cool iced tea. And I'm Mia Mix, here to set the tone and make sure the mood is right. So come on in and get comfortable. Pull up a chair, have a seat. You can even take your shoes off. Wait, not if your feet is down. <laughs> oh, hell no. Welcome, Welcome to Marsha's Plate. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be all right. Just know that it will be all right. It will be all right. It will be all right. Join the conversation. Hashtag Marsha's Plate. Oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Plate. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So, let's get started. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is your girl, Diamond. So, I have a special guest in the building. Um, their name is Sasha, right? Yeah. And Alexander. Peace, peace, yes. <laughs> so, Sasha is a non-binary Black trans artist, organizer, a healer, an educator, and the founder of Black Trans Media. Okay. They have committed their work to transformative justice, the power of the people, and arts for liberation, the gift of our own spirit of medicine. They have worked with a host of organizations like GCA Network, Brown Boy Project, Global Global Action Project, and Tribeca Film Institute, the Silver Re- Sylvia Rivera Law Project, and many more. And the list goes on and on and on. And last but not least, <laughs> they are married to the fierce black <laughs> trans warrior woman, Olympia Perez. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I have been following Sasha... For, I think we, we met in 2015 at the Philly Trans Health Conference, mm-hmm. now called the Philly Wellness. You know, mm-hmm. they also mm-hmm. fuck shit now. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I've I met them there and I have been inspired and just love seeing the coupling and love seeing the work that y'all do. So I wanted to make sure, once you told me that you, was gonna, you were in Houston, I wanted to bring okay. you to the show. So that's what we're here. So right welcome. On. Thank you. I so appreciate that. And I have to just thank you for creating space and having me here. Um, it's an welcome. honor to be in this space and be part of this incredible work. And <laughs> I know Olympia is would be here. It's actually her birthday, like oh, tomorrow, birthday. technically in like a few hours. So she's she's sending her love and um, that's our black trans love as well. If it's everywhere we go, it's who we are and what we do. So I'm just so honored to be here and uh, talk about my work and who I am and what yeah. I do. And So tell me where you're from. You know, when everybody asks me that question, I always say I'm from everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> and one reason I say that is because I'm, I'm an adopt, I'm an adoptee. Mm-hmm. And so my relationship to home and being just black, you know, just mm-hmm. like what is home? I don't know a lot of things. I just don't always have an answer that's always gotcha. quick like that. So I was born in Indiana, but I was adopted when I was little. Okay. And then I was raised in Jersey. 
And then, I'm uh, from Indiana. You know that. I was born no, in Indiana. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. That's where I was born. Yeah. I don't know anything about I've never been back there since I was born. Okay. And um, the story of my birth is like a whole situation. Uh, my mom was very young and was assaulted by yeah. my father, and there's not any information. And so for me, finding kin and being connected to myself and mm. other black trans folks, like those are my cousins and my brothers and my sisters and my aunties. And the folks that I didn't get to be raised with, right. I see them in I see them in you Aww. and the beautiful people that are doing amazing things around me that inspire me. So, okay. um, so where where did you grow up? So I grew up in South Jersey. Okay, uh, you know, was like a tri-state kid. Grew up coming up to the city and mm-hmm. being you know, coming out young, and you know, I came out young at the time, like right language. I was um, female, masculine. I was mm-hmm. butch. I was a lesbian, but I was like twelve. <laughs> And I came out, I was very young, and I started a, a gay-straight alliance in my school, and that actually, like, really propelled me into the world to see that there were people like me who were doing things that I wasn't alone in what I was going through, and mm. really changed my life and, and yeah. uh, sent me everywhere. I recently did, um, in March, I did an event in PA, in Pennsylvania, and... Um, it was the GCA for that um, middle Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and it was so emotional, like emotionally powerful, powerful for me. Even though the circumstances, the money circumstances was weird. Mm-hmm. I got paid, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but it was I, I did a lot of work for something I didn't. Do. No, anyway, I know we know how that yes, is. Yes, we know how that goes. Mm-hmm. So, but I still it. I got paid in another kind of way mm-hmm. that kind of just was so powerful sure, for, to me sure. because I was able to do like a keynote three across three days mm. for m- multiple type of groups of people. So it was um, people who were, I think, junior high, wow. and then it was people who were in high school, and then people who were in co- freshmen in college. Wow. And and it was all set up by the GCA, and just seeing them people, seeing just the kids and the new generation, mm. how powerful they are how affirmed they are how um even the midst of the shadiness is now but just seeing the difference in where when i was coming up, i was coming up in the 90s i went to high school between 95 and um 99 mm-hmm. and it, i didn't have this kind of community that they mm-hmm. have i didn't have these examples on tv i just seeing the beauty of the work that um us, our community collective have sure. done to give them space to be sure. affirmed. Seeing that was so fucking amazing. Sure. So I know the power of GCA. That just oh, was yeah. a great Those are super powerful. Thing. Yeah. I mean, and a lot has changed, you know, since, I mean, I was in high school in like the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And when when I had a GSA, there was this workshop we used to do called What About the T? Because mm-hmm. people were not talking about trans people. People exactly. were talking about gay and lesbian and bi people. And people were not talking about trans or gender non-conforming or the binary, any mm-hmm. of those kind of things, you know. And and it's so interesting to see how far our spaces have come mm-hmm. because there were very few spaces for us that our folks had formed, you know, prior to the 2000s. Even though people were holding some spaces, you know, and doing right. work, it's a completely different world that mm-hmm. we live in now as, you know, trans folks. And it's incredible to have been able to see that shift mm-hmm. over the course of even our time, you know? Yeah. For me, I've been a youth organizer since I was around that age, 11, 12, when I got really politicized. I grew up outside of Philly, and I uh, got politicized by what was happening to Mumia Abu-Jamal and mm-hmm. police violence and racism and all sorts of intersections and getting to 
go through political education through GSA and other things right. and opportunities that I know even a generation a few years ahead of me did not get to have access to. Yeah. And I think it really has it changed what uh, a lot of us were able to, to do because we weren't as isolated. We were able to see each other yeah. or even be with each other, yeah. you know, hear each other like you're doing in yeah. such powerful ways. And um, yeah, it's it's incredible what has happened, you know, and yet it's still it's still not um, enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just not enough. Yeah, and there's so much that I feel hasn't changed in terms of there's still such an attention between gay and lesbian and bi people and trans people. I mean, now we talk about the T, but they're they're mad about it, you yeah. know. And it's like now there's some shifts in terms of visibility, but our sisters are the still visit- dying. Yeah, <laughs> and and so it's like um, it's hard for me to almost say like that it's better. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, as an organizer, I want to say, yes, we've made changes and things to make it better, you know. And at the same time, as long as our folks are dying and having to live the way they live, it, it never feels like it's enough, you know. Right. You're listening to Houston's own MP Trans 101. Now, listen, I know that what is basic Trans 101 for me could just be the beginning for you. So this is for your basic ass. <laughs> For me in this life could be just the beginning for you. Trans 101 is being brought to you by Brianna Jenkins. She is a brilliant activist, soon to be lawyer, trans woman of color who has been on the show and she wanted to make sure that you are clear about what's going on. So let's talk about this case that was presented on this past Tuesday to the Supreme Court. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a landmark civil rights and labor law in the United States that outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements and racial segregation in schools, employment, and public accommodations. When we think about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we think about it in the context of the civil rights movements of the 60s. And the issue that dominated then was race. But this was also a time of great gender tensions in the country. Actually, the year before, in 1963, the Equal Pay Act was established. Because of the hard work of black people, the black civil rights movement was gaining traction. The evidence was that the Civil Rights Act was being presented. So the racist white liberals saw this as an opportunity. A longtime organizer for women's suffrage, white women's suffrage, got to make that clear. A lady by the name of Alice Paul and a powerful Virginia Democrat by the name of Howard W. Smith got together and added sex discrimination to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But don't let that nice gesture um, fool you in thinking that they had good intentions. 
they wanted women to have sex discrimination protections, but they actually didn't want black people to have the rights. But just in case they got to push this shit through, they put it on the law. When this was going on, Alice Paul was 79. So she was an old white woman. But let's go back a few decades, back to the time when she was 28. You might not remember her, but this is the same white woman that organized the women's suffrage parade. During that parade, because she was worried about black women being there and how that looked to people she was trying to convince to give white women the right to vote, she wanted black women to march in the parade behind the white women. One of those black women was the amazing, great Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell, who were honorary members of Delta Sigma Theta, one of the divine nine black Greek organizations. They were the only one there. So this white woman, Alice Paul, has a history of throwing black people under the bus when it comes to advancing white women's rights. So it's ironic that once black people are starting to get traction with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, she will organize with her white male friend to tack on sex discrimination onto the act. So anyway, that's a little bit of history. So let me focus back on the today. So from the 60s, once the Civil Rights Act passed, from the 60s on through the 70s, on through the 80s, women were protected but just because something is on the books does not mean that it is in practice in the culture. The landscape in the workforce was grossly sexist and grossly imbalanced in regards to pay. Still, we don't have access to equal pay now. <laughs> we did not get opportunities for upper level positions at all. We were delegated to administrative positions and just bullshit. No. So, in 1989, here comes a white woman being mistreated at work to sue her white colleagues at Price Waterhouse. This white woman was named Ann Hopkins. Ann Hopkins worked for Price Waterhouse for five years before being proposed as partner. Although Hopkins secured a $25 million government contract that year, the board decided to put her proposal on hold for the following year. The next year, when Pricewaterhouse refused to repropose her for the partnership, she sued under Title VII for sex discrimination. Of 622 partners of Pricewaterhouse, only seven were women. The partnership selection process relied on recommendations from other partners, some of whom openly opposed women in advanced position at Pricewaterhouse. But Hopkins also had problems with being overtly aggressive and not getting along with office staff. Ironically, the traits that made her a good candidate for being a partner was her aggression and her ability to go get that money. $25 million! The district court held that Price Waterhouse had discriminated, but Hopkins was not entitled to the full damages because her poor interpersonal skills also contributed to the board's decision. So I want you to think about that. Because of how she engaged with other people was not deemed womanly, 
<laughs> that was also a part of why she did not get the partnership. You see the contradiction there? Yeah, that's weird. So this set in motion a new definition of what sex discrimination looked like. What this case did was establish that gender stereotyping was wrong and illegal and discriminatory. So that brings us back to this week, this Tuesday that just passed. There are three cases that have been combined that involved two gay men and one trans woman. They were combined because they essentially asked the same legal question. What is that legal question? Are gay and trans people covered under the word sex in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964? It made its way all the way to the Supreme Court because all around the country, the lower courts, a.k.a. the appellate courts, are split in their decisions. So they can't make up their minds. Some of the smaller courts are like, yes, girl, they're being really shady. They're discriminating against you. And you are covered under Title VII. And some of the other courts is like, oh, no, honey. <laughs> it's a chop. That's not what's going down here. They're not discriminating against you. You freaks, this title does not cover you freaks. You gays and trans, no. This is not for y'all. We were being gracious when we let this cis white woman come through and win against the good white men in the corporation. But you freaks, nah. Wrong day, wrong court. So, because all the lower courts cannot make up their mind, now they got to bring in the big dogs, the Supreme Court. The effects and the decision of this case will affect women, trans folks, gay folks, anybody who do not perform gender in the stereotypical ways of society. I do hope you understand the severity of the cases now. That's Trans 101. Shit, that was a 20th century women's liberation course in 15 minutes. <laughs> oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yay, 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 yay. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know... I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community. And I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here. So you're not only helping to sustain us, you're helping to sustain other people in a community. Because I put my money where my mouth is. You know, that's just the kind of bitch I am. Community is fuck. <laughs> so thank you. I really, really appreciate you. And if you have not become a patron, why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. Tell me um, your favorite way to build community. Oh my God. Like, what is your, what does that look like for you? What is your favorite way? What is your favorite strategy? What is your tactic in life? 
I mean, the first thing that came to mind when you said that was just holding space. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work around space, and mm -hmm. we have this work we do called Space is the Place, right. which is, you know, because we've been pushed out of space, denied access to space, uh, harmed in space, it's so important to have space, whether that's by yourself or with other folks, that right. you can feel powerful and you can feel whole and you can feel... Um, black trans everything that's where that even came from yeah. when I came up with that it was literally because I wasn't feeling like everything and or I was feeling like everything terrible and mm. not everything powerful that's the thing about blackness you know like it's it's that's such an extreme you Fanon used to say this you can feel like everything mm. infinity or you can feel like nothingness exactly. and as a black body you just have to straddle that as a black trans body you have to straddle that even more intensely that feeling you know my part forgot to you good gotta mute it go ahead no you're good you're good just that feeling of having to know that you're powerful and your people are powerful and yet they're being treated and living in a world and feeling like they're they're nothing you know mm. and it's a lot to hold so i feel like the space that i hold it's very cultural it's like what do we do and we're together anyway you know like it's in many ways, I'm inspired by like other movements, like the Black Panthers, and like mm -hmm. having a meal and bringing people together, and the idea that like, yeah, our folks can organize, but if they're hungry, you know, we can bring them to the table, and we can meet this need, and we can also build, and we can strategize. Right. And so, a lot of the work has been from our hearts and our spirits, literally generated just by Black trans youth and community to help guide what should these spaces even hold. And a few years ago, actually, pre right before the election. Um, there was a group of black trans folks that we gathered to kind of make this like list of just what were our urgent needs of things. And I keep it up. It's up on the wall. There's like lists and lists of that. And it just guides me. It's like my, it's like our strategic plan of what right. we're supposed to accomplish. All of these things that what are folks things on the list? Oh my gosh. So many beautiful things like, oh, things like, um, having space together, mm -hmm. retreating together, creating together, reconnecting to our childhoods. People put mm. things like learning to swim. At this point, people wanted to go to the Women's March, and we mm. did. Um, what is on there? Uh, gosh, health care, meeting people's health care needs, of housing course. folks, um, photo series, timelines. This is where the saying we got, a reminder to get ready, came from. This was right mm. before the election, and somebody was talking about I wish we just had like a reminder of how to get ready because like things are coming and things are here and I wish there was just, you know, and so it got us thinking about um, what did it mean to create that reminder for our folks, you know, mm -hmm. and create a space that could be that reminder of how we do that with each other. You mentioned about reconnecting with your childhood. Mm -hmm. One thing that I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, tell me about your favorite part about growing up black. Like, give me, like, some stories or a situation in your growing up where you just love growing up black. Did I just love growing up black? Um, what are my favorite stories? Just favorite memories, stories, or situations that really just, that you remember that, oh, this is a black-ass fucking moment that I fucking love. My mom always tells this story about me when I was little, when I was at the park, and these other uh, these other girls were watching me, these older black girls were watching me, and I was on the swing, and I was, you know, doing my thing or whatever, 
And one of them said, oh, oh, honey, you want me to push you? And I said, I'll do it myself. <laughs> and they said, oh, that child is definitely okay. You know, like, that child is going to be okay. Um, my mom always loves to tell me that story. Mm. Um, you know, it's so funny. Like, I don't even think about immediate experiences mm-hmm. with my blackness as a child because in some ways, like, uh, as an adopted kid, I was transracially adopted. So mm-hmm. my parents are white. One of my little brothers is also adopted. Um, but it's almost, it's, I I don't think I've ever been asked that question to think about those memories from my childhood. So in some way you're helping me meet this goal that's on our list of reconnecting with our childhoods because I'm like, what are those memories that I had that I was feeling? Because uh, it can be complicated if you're in, in a transracial. It was complicated. It was complicated. Yeah, yeah. It was complicated. And do you remember the first space, even if it's not in your childhood, like if you were a teen or um, a little bit older, do you remember the first place where, since you grew up in this kind of white space, yeah. do you remember the first place where you were like, oh, these are my folks? You know, my mom made a point. My mom was like a movement mother. She went through the civil rights movement as a white Mm -hmm. ally. And she was like, she was in the room when Malcolm X got shot. She was at the Fannie Lou Hamer trial. She was very politicized. And so, and in some ways she had a sense that it was important for me to be in black spaces. Mm. But as a white woman, you know, like her entry to that, like, it's not like she really knows what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And so it's like, you know, I remember her taking me to church and us going to the, we lived in a black neighborhood and going to the church in that neighborhood, the Baptist church in that neighborhood and her taking me there. But I think, you know, being young and being queer, that wasn't necessarily Great. <laughs> where I found myself having to put on a Sunday school, having to fight mom about putting on a, on a yeah. dress or something like that because I did not want to do that. Um, and so, yeah. You know, also what was pretty powerful was um, we would always celebrate Kwanzaa, mm-hmm. which uh, which for me was like getting to learn drumming and getting to learn these words, like literally mm-hmm. not knowing I was decolonizing my little my little tongue, right. you know, but having some sense of some connection, um, which was really challenging, you know, growing up. I felt very disconnected in a lot of ways from from who I am and, and mm-hmm. from my folks. I remember reading something that you started some some group called the Trans Africanism Group that was kind of oh. rooted in Kwanzaa. Yeah, years no, ago. through through Black Trans Media, we started. We did a lot of cultural organizing when it mm-hmm. first started because literally it was like just happening wherever we had space, right. holding space in living rooms and kitchens, and then slowly we all started to lose our spaces, and mm. that became a whole thing. But we did it because. Mm. A lot of black trans folks um, haven't necessarily done Kwanzaa or celebrated the tradition. And some people feel a way about Kwanzaa because its of history course, is yeah. rooted in complicated yeah. things. Um, but the but the core principles. Sure. Yeah. If you the focus idea, on the core yes, idea of it yes. and look past who created it and that yes, yes. which that is what sense, the fuck we do sure, as black all the folks. Time. <laughs> and what people just do in general all yes, the time about history. So yes. let's just, you know, Stop. take what we need and carry on. Right. Um yeah, no, it was really powerful to be introduced to that mm. and, and to be able to share that with folks. And the principles, like when you talk about them, like emotion, like unity, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about that as black trans people becomes a whole other meaning than what I was growing up celebrating Kwanzaa too, because a vulnerable space for black trans people to talk about their 
Nia, their purpose, right. or you know, these concepts like self determination, Kuji Chagalia, right? These right. things, like these, are things that we literally like live out yeah. in our lives every day. You know, what, we are we, experts. What we fight to, to struggle yeah. to plant yeah. our feet on, but to hold any kind of ritual or ceremony or sacred space, you know, when those things have been taken from our folks, you know. Is just so important to us, you mm. know, and so that became just an important cultural space that we gotcha. that we got to hold, you know. So, in light of um, like these cultural things that are happening in our culture right now, like you know, transphobic comedy specials, mm. um, um, stories being told, and the deaths, and all the negative cultural things, is there a particular? Um, cultural happening that happened and you were immediately directly affected by it. The reason why I ask that is because um, I was commissioned to do an article for Essence recently. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it comes out tomorrow. Okay. Um, and they, and I, and I was really, I wasn't struggling to do it, but I, I wanted to hear another person's experience about how, you know, they say, Oh, it's just jokes. Oh, it's just, um, Oh, this doesn't matter. This isn't a direct effect. But when you live this life, a lot of things can culturally impact you because you're so far on the fringes. So where it could not affect somebody else's life who mm -hmm. are more in, closest to whiteness, sure. closest to sure. um, cl a, a better class, not better class, but um, closer to a higher class and blah, blah, sure. blah, blah, blah. When you're so far on the fringes, those little nuances in culture sure. can really affect you in a life, sure. life or death ways. So has there been something that happened in the past that like a movie, a show that you, somebody that, that negatively impacted you directly? A movie or a show particularly? Mm -hmm. Or anything. Anything that you can remember where like, oh, this cult, not general culture, but something really specific. That So, for example, I remember um, um, when Martin Lawrence did an episode about RuPaul or something on Martin. Oh, sure, sure, so sure. there was there was an episode where RuPaul was like the one of the premises on the show. Sure. And... Um, when I when I when that show aired, mm -hmm. they would use. But when I would when when I would go to school, they would use some of those jokes against sure. me. So yep. that's yep. what I really yep. mean. Is there something that um, was directly impacted your life that you could that really stood out? I mean, when you said that, it made me think of of one thing was growing up watching these reality shows like the Maury show and these things mm -hmm. and they would have these trans people come out and they would have the audience try to guess with yes. these signs if they were a man or if they were a woman mm -hmm. um, and I just remember watching those things uh, you know as a kid and um, and then being you know gender non-conforming or trans myself before right. I even had that language for it and people kind of placing that same, playing that same game with you as you're on the street coming up. Yeah. Or wherever, in the, on wherever, the bus, wherever, on the yeah, train. I was right. feeling like it was appropriate to kind of either at, or do it in front of me. Like it was a game show that I wasn't right. part of and or involve me in it. Like I want to be involved in uh, helping them decide, you know, <laughs> what I am or whatever, you know what I'm saying? And um, yeah. The other thing that I think about, like when I think about media examples, um, is like the Ace Ventura movie, the Pet Detective movie, mm -hmm. with the twist that's at supposed the to be at the a twist at the end where she's 
trans right. and but I never connected to especially like loving a black trans woman now and like mm-hmm. being somebody who confronts like a lot of stereotypes people have about like loving being black and trans and loving each other. Right. I think about that scene where he's I think he's like holding a plunger up to his face and he's like throwing up after he finds out that she has transitioned right yeah. and that that's like the big twist in the movie and as a kid i don't remember at all that nuance i don't really remember mm-hmm. feeling like any way about it but as a, as an adult like especially as somebody who like wants to be loved but also deeply loves right. you know my wife and other and other my sisters it just it sticks with me as just these these things that were just so, supposed to be so normal you know, mm-hmm. that are just literally movies that we were raised with, the things right. that we watched as kids that is just... Um, and, and, and how it informs our uncomfortableness, uh, othering ourselves, it also informs the uh, people, other people, on oh, how yeah. they should respond oh, sure. to us sure. when they meet us in person. Yeah. So this plunger and this sure. throwing it's either, up. Sure, it's either gross or it's funny. Yes, yeah, gross or And there's or not funny. really any media, yeah. any, any other thing. Maybe people think it's sad or whatever. There's It's just all these negative associations with the identity, which is just... I mean, I think people feel that way about black people a lot, of, about our own blackness a lot of the times. Yeah. Like, we've been fed so many negative, you know, ideas about this thing that, like, a lot of us even internalize that when right. we see each other, you know, let alone other people about exactly. us. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, even as you look at black people have so much more visibility in media, it's like, that's why visibility is not the end game. That's right. not the answer. No. You can see us on a bunch of channels now if you want to. And you can also see us out in the street if yeah. you would like to. Like, it hasn't necessarily changed the material conditions for black folks in no, this country. No, not at all. And so it's like, it's hard because I both balance that I, I love seeing my brothers and sisters and siblings, like, do what they're doing and be out there in ways like we're talking about weren't even there when we were growing up and yet it's scary because you know historically when communities have had some uh progression right there's a lot of repression and there's a lot of of lashing back and so while i am happy to see our folks uh seen and centered without actually having housing and laws to protect us and support and all of the things institutionally and culturally that people need to thrive you're just seeing us just like being black you're just seeing us and our lives our material conditions are not actually changing and becoming any better and y'all are just consuming us and and enjoying it it, which is great when Mm -hmm. people see that we're we're talented and we're musicians and we're actresses and we're we can do sports we can do all these things um but similar to being black it's like but you actually don't care about who we are and what we're going through right you don't actually care about improving our lives and um to me that's part of why i founded black transmedia initially it was because i wanted to create more media because i'd come through a lot of filmmaking and video programs like from a social justice lens working with young people and that's literally how I learned video and then I was able to start to teach it to people and I realized um, like for me the catalyst of the work was was Islam Nettles attack in New York City mm. in Harlem in 2013 right. I was working in Harlem at a cinema not that far teaching video to youth like maybe like just you know 10 blocks or so away from where that happened and when it happened there's so many black trans people who came out. The family came out. Laverne came out. It was this whole fiasco Dang. in New York uh, where they did this public gathering. And, of course, the family's misgendering her as these things happen, you know, when the family is there. And then for all of us, it feels like we're all at our own funeral listening to our <laughs> right. own family misgender us. Right. We're and going I'm, through the trauma right, of that. Right. And then, I'm si- and then, you know, people are trying to coddle it and be like, no, 
you know. And it's like, it, it's just so intense. And meanwhile, there is actually no political home in New York City for black trans people. There is no, to the point we were talking about before, like who is telling this narrative, right? She's being misgendered, she's being misnamed, right? She's being victim blamed, all of these things. And it's not just because she's a trans woman, it's also because she's black. Right. It's because she's a young black trans woman. And that intersection and people actually being able to understand that, well, you have plenty of white, maybe trans people out there talking about what was happening and having a seat right. and a plate at the table, right? But the folks who actually were experiencing this and are connected to the communities that are impacted, there was like not a space for us. And right. that was really the catalyst of why I was like, it was after that that I was like, I just need, there needs to be, there needs to be this space. And I wish somebody else would just create it so that I could just be part of it. <laughs> but, you know, I just had to just tell my, this just needs to happen and let's just make this happen. Yeah. And so it just started as screening other black trans folks work and creating space and creating in some ways an analysis too, talking about criminalization and talking about, um, colonialism, talking about white supremacy in different ways because in a lot of the spaces where we are in New York City, there's tons of black trans people getting services. Like right. they love for us to come get the services. Right. You they're know? getting grants oh, they love it. for oh, they love uh, money from oh, the government sure. for oh, us. Just for us. But there yeah. is no space that is uniquely ours. Right. There's no space that is autonomously ours. And that's not unique to New York. No. I think there's very few spaces I can name across the country like I can maybe name one off the top of my head. I can think of like Brave Space Alliance in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's like a black TG, there's black TGNC collective there. There's mm -hmm. very few spaces. And even then I think, I don't know if they lost their physical space, right? Like whether we're pushed out of our homes, like we don't even have space to organize. We don't have, like right. it just became such an important, it became not even about making media at a point because it right. was like, oh my God, we have all these other needs we need to be able to produce media, you know? Right. And so it became about the organizing and the leadership development and the economic development, like paying black trans folks yeah. to do everything that they're doing and not being as concerned with output and distribution and things that in some of the film and video and media world I was in were so central and really actually just caring about and centralizing black trans people and being like, that is okay for me to center myself and my folks. Right. I don't have to say it's LGBT people or TGNC people of color. It's like it's not okay to just have a space that's black and trans. Right. Because so many spaces are really anti-black, so they don't want you to center being black. Or they're anti-trans, so we go into black spaces, they're not safe. We go into trans spaces, they're racist as fuck. You right. know? And having a space that we could be and have as ours was just so important, especially because the some of the only spaces we were seeing were super depoliticized kind of, or kind of cons like, look, everybody has their relationship to policing. You know, not everybody has to be an abolitionist or, or, you know, believe what I believe about the things I do. But there are a lot of black trans people who don't want to work with the state, don't want to be involved in the systems and want to divest from these things and want to talk about living and existing in different ways than some of our folks who literally just want to exist in the world as it does and have power as those people do, right. you know, and like really creating a space where we can, people could just get a meal and can like, like work on some stuff or like actually have these deeper conversations and start to do this work. Like, uh, it's been about five years now of doing this work with Black Transmedia, and mm. like we've been able to, we're about to get a physical space in New York. We just got funding to get oh, space. Good. And we're trying to house folks in that space while we do that to meet these like intersections of what we're doing because we know we have things we want to create and stories we need to tell and you know narratives that need to be told. And yet it's like I can never prioritize 
like people over those stories. Our people Absolutely. are those stories, exactly. you know? So what about the positive media? So we have mm. we have some really it's some kind of trans renaissance happening that has grown and of course we know yeah. it's not going to solve, solve everything. But the positive ones that I want to kind of that are notable is like Pose, um since a Euphoria's one, Yans Ford being nominated for like an oh, Oscar sure. for Love his Yance. um strong island. for his strong island. Sure. Super super amazing. Um Courtney Ziegler's work with Abolition. Sure. Um you know, it's a it's a it's an uptick of positive work happening. What are some of those positive cult, cultural moments that are speaking to you and that you see are having a positive impact on our lives? Some of the positive things. Oh well, I got to shout out and and send love to my brother Devin Lowe, who started Black mm-hmm. Trans Travel Fund for mm, Black trans nice. women in New York City as a result of seeing and knowing that our sisters need to get where they need to get safe, and right. the train is not a safe place for them and they should have access to travel and support yes there's beautiful. um a, a young black trans brother and black trans sister who are uh, a married couple who just started a project also in new york city called black trans blessing nice. which is still like in its phase Infancy. yeah but they're trying to provide binders and gaffes and and other things for black and latinx trans folks and mm. they're both like they're both very young and just out here and it's inspiring to see uh, our folks just creating and centering things for ourselves. Mm. Another great project out of New York City is Okra Project that's yeah. literally feeding black TGNC folks. Um, and it's great to, again, just see folks who are just like being able to provide a, dire- a direct need that our folks need and us being able to be the ones to do that. Like it right. feels really magical and special yeah. to be the ones to do that. Um, are you seeing any reflections of yourself? In media. Oh, that's tough. Yeah. Um, I mean, for myself, my identity is like has been very fluid at times when I used to identify as a trans man Mm -hmm. exclusively. um, There were things like as a black trans man that I was starting to see that were really being created by other black trans men, mostly to see ourselves. Right, because Courtney did a video. um, Courtney made Still Black. And then I was actually, and there's a black trans man named Luca Rosenberg Lee. He made Mm -hmm. a film called Passing. Mm -hmm. I was in that film along with, um, what is his name? Victor Thomas Mm -hmm. and Luca, who's a black trans guy. Um, And that film was really beautiful. A lot of folks actually haven't seen that film. Yeah, I've never it's, heard of it. It's super gorgeous. It's called Passing? It's called Passing. Okay. It's from it's because he's from Canada when he made the film. And I just think it's also like there's some amazing stuff that our folks have done that just like people just like don't know. Yeah. That's an, it's just an awesome film that people should see. But for myself now, like in my identity as it exists, I actually find a lot of challenges in seeing myself represented in, in depictions because... Um, when there are depictions of people who might be um, more gender non-conforming, like they don't tend to be uh, people who come from my kind of experience mm-hmm. and they don't tend to be people who share like a similar sense of identity. So I guess by that I mean, like at one point I identified as a trans man and I used he and him and his, and that was right. all I wanted to hear. And as I was in that identity, I realized I done I did not identify as a man, and I had no desire to ever identify as a man. Mm-hmm. And that, if anything, I actually realized that that it allowed me to tap into the power of, of my womanhood, mm. which for many trans masculine people is not necessarily something that is what happens for them on their journey. Right. 
for me, it was. And I realized that I had, as a young girl, really like internalized that there was nothing powerful about being a woman and that there was nothing powerful about continuing to live my life as a woman in a way that mm -hmm. as I became and looked more male, I was able to actually unlearn. And as I saw women in my life who were so powerful, and I was like, why would I ever believe that I couldn't still be a woman in the mm -hmm. identity I have? I was always a female masculine person. I was always a butch. And they never thought I was a woman. I was always mm -hmm. too masculine. But for me, I started to realize that like my, my identity as a trans person, as a trans masculine, non-binary person was a lot more... There's a lot of people I like meet who feel similar to I do. Right. It's just that I don't feel like there's a lot of representations of us talking about kind mm -hmm. of some of these nuances. Mm. So like for me, I use the pronouns she and they and he, and I insist that people mix it up or use my name. Mm. And for me, I don't see a lot of representations of trans people who necessarily are exist in that middle ground. In there. Yeah, and all these different kind of nuances. Right. Like a lot of times it is a more binary depiction Sometimes. And sometimes yeah, it's not. Absolutely. A lot of us live our lives in so many vast ways. And I learned that a lot as I, I came out like 15 years ago, as I've aged in the trans community and realized even some people who I thought considered themselves very binary were like, oh, no, I actually have all this. Like, that's not actually how I necessarily identify mm. or see myself either. And so in some ways, I wonder if it's just being able to be more connected to who I really am fully rather than just who I feel I have to be in order to be seen by the world, you know? Yeah, I remember as I grew I, earlier in my transition stage, I was bi binary as fuck, mm -hmm. problematically bi binary. Me too, me too. Um, and I'm, st I'm still binary, but um, what I learned from non-binary people is that all the rules that I had for myself, even though it wasn't as, um, even though I was still binary, I didn't have to, I could relax those rules a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's what, I, what I've what i learned from mm -hmm. non-binary people and this kind of uptick of non-binary sure. visibility is that, you know, I, I don't need to abide by these rules. And it wasn't, it was rules kind of rooted in what outer society sure. says, but it was rules that, that I was- You internalized. Uh, that I was sure. setting up for myself and holding up for myself. I really, um, like I remember when I was younger, I used to always play video games. It was something that I loved. Mm -hmm. But as I grew up, I associated with boys. Like, mm -hmm. I associated with boys like to play video games. I know games. so many girls and, like that. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, so I stopped doing those things. And so maybe like uh, like five, six years ago, I got, I got reintroduced myself to games. And I know that's small, but for no. me, that's that was something that... Um, that was one of the things there's many things but one of the things i was like you got to embrace some of the your masculineness some of the things that um for me that was quote unquote demasculine i tried to undo them and blah 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 blah, blah. and so now seeing non-binary people with this freedom get, gave me some visual and internalized freedom as well to be able to j just do what the fuck I want to do oh, yeah. regardless of what I think if, if it's a little bit more masculine or a little bit more feminine sure. or whatever it is. You know, it's interesting because you say that and one of the things I've been thinking about lately as like language changes and you think mm -hmm. about stuff is like technically I feel like all trans people are, are non-binary in the fact that being yes. assigned a certain sex and identifying as a different, I mean, being assigned a sex or gender and identifying differently, right? That's that's non-binary because right. like cisgender people don't, that's a, they don't have that experience. Right. 
like even if a trans person is very binarily identified as a trans man mm -hmm. or a trans woman, they have still transgressed gender in a way right. that cisgender people have not done. That defies the binary. The right. binary very distinctly says there are there's one side here and there's one side here. Right. And essentially I think right that you right. So I feel like even by being trans there's an essence of being non-binary, right? Yeah. But then we associate all of these things about who we are with these with masculinity and femininity right. and masculine energy and feminine energy. And in some ways I feel like I want to challenge that stuff because, and in other ways I get that that's where people find themselves and people, you know, have the ways they want to call themselves. But it's like sometimes people, I've just noticed this thing in community, I guess, where it's like people are non-binary, but they're also really deeply ascribing to certain gender norms. Like, right. you know, and so I feel like it's really complicated and, I don't know. I've even heard people be like, "Oh, non-binary is not trans," and I'm like, "I have oh, TGNC has always been an umbrella. Trans has always been an umbrella. You could talk about Marsha herself in New York. It's very yeah. contested. Everyone wants to call her out her damn name because of her, of the history of the fact that there wasn't this language when Marsha was growing right. was in New York City. Right. And yet, so what? We could say she was, of course, very non-binary in the way she chose to live yeah. her life and or had to live her life to survive, right? right? And and yet to me, like, that's just being trans, <laughs> you know, and then you have some people who will be like, well, I'm non-binary, but I'm not trans. I respect everyone's going to identify how they want to identify. But it's almost like there's this idea that if you don't medically transition in a certain way, you're not this and that. Yeah. And and some of that comes from within our own community. Yeah. And it's the stuff that we've been fed and that we've, you know, we're feeding back. And it's so harmful to see it happen from our own folks. But I get it, you know, yeah. who and, you know. Who are some of your heroes that are, let's start with the ones that are not living, mm. and then let's start with, then, then go into the ones that are living now. Oh my gosh. Some of my heroes, um, well obviously, we've already spoke her name, Marsha is yeah. obviously a very influential hero. Just in terms of her spirit, her spirit is so powerful in New York and like lives through mm. so many women in this really beautiful way. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Um, like her spiritual connection to the water that she had is something, I don't know, I feel like trans people were just so spiritual mm -hmm. um, in this way and she's just been such an influential figure in terms of just existing as she mm -hmm. did in the city. and. Um, Sylvia Rivera, obviously, too, as someone who just, I mean, also a very contested figure in terms of her role in a lot of different things. Yeah. But, I mean, still, I mean, she was, people don't like to talk about it. She was ni like 19 at the time of Stonewall. She was a youth activist. And she was yeah. doing intersectional work with the Panthers and the, you know, like, we didn't have these terms for what they were doing at the time, but it was really radical and really revolutionary. Housing your folks. Yeah. You know, makeshift housing on the pier. Like, these are things that, like, those things are incredible, you know. Yeah. Um, there's this and people always forget to talk about Stormy. Oh yeah, as well. You know, I'm not as connected to the history with Stormy, but I feel like yeah, another figure important, like in terms of thinking about Stonewall, who's totally erased. You yeah, know? totally, totally. I mean, yeah. another person who I definitely want to name is people know this person as. Forney because their name there's a whole bunch of there's a service provider that's named after them mm -hmm. but they were known in 
community as delicious. Mm -hmm. And I know that through my wife and other people who are from and grew up in New York City who knew what happened to her, which was she was like street homeless and she was killed. But in creating a service like organization after her, that's like a multi-million, you know, organization, like they like they misgender her and the way they talk about her gender is really gross. Mm. And um, she, to me, is so symbolic of like so many uh, people I know who have been pushed out and have had to go through the shelter system. And I don't know, I just think she's a really powerful spirit. Um, and what about living? Who are your heroes right now? Who are inspiring you? Who are... Yeah. The last one I was going to share, who okay. is not with us, that I was just thinking of, is Juan Evans. I don't know if you mm, met. Did you ever no. meet Juan? Uh-uh. He was from Georgia, black trans man who like, was really dealt with a lot of criminalization as he was growing up, was in and out of you know prisons and jails. And you probably m- might have heard the story or remember the story years ago in Atlanta. He was driving around and he didn't have his license on him and the police stopped him. I think he, was, he wasn't far from his home. And he didn't have his ID on him, and his name wasn't changed. And so when he gave his name, they did not believe him, and they, they told him they were going to do a genital search on him to, to see if he was who he was. And had made like headlines mm. because they were going to, you know, search his genitals to see if he was who he was and everything like that. And he was an abolitionist. He was part of um, SNAP Coalition and Racial right. Justice Action Center in Atlanta that do like a lot of incredible work with Miss Didi Chambly, BT, transforming all these great folks. And he passed away a few years ago. Um, and he was just so instrumental as a person that I just mm-hmm. looked to as a black trans man who was an abolitionist, who he was married and, you know, he was just, he was a really beautiful spirit. And, um, just reminds me, someone who is living, who I will share, who I really, really love and talk to mm-hmm. all the time and admire, is Kyler Brodus, who is, yeah. he is my kin, he is my family, and he, I feel very g- gifted and blessed to have him because he reminds me of, of. I always remind him he didn't get to have a Kyler to help him understand and come up and right. see what what he could be or not or whatever you know to to go through the fire before you like he uh-huh. really Kyler has been through the fire yes like so intensely in so many ways and like I just admire his he's brilliant and his resilience and he's been through a lot and he's just such a he's got a mighty 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 spirit and, right. um, and he's very sweet and he's like uh you like we have like we are connected as like kin as family and really look out and I really I love him and I love that relationship we can have with each other where we actually look out for each other. Right. He's somebody um, that I love. Obviously, I got to say my wife, Olympia Sudan, because she just has been super influential on my life. And I definitely would not know as much or be as good as I am without connecting with her. That's beautiful. She is a super powerful spirit who... Uh, Wow, she's just so mighty. Even thinking about her, I get over. I get like I get a little emotional um, because she's just she's just been through so much, and she is so gracious with her spirit sometimes in terms of the truth that she shines light on, and in many ways that m- makes her an outcast from spaces, and that creates a lot of conflict for her. And she's had a lot of violence she's had to face in her life, and she's also always shown me like I think she was really the first woman who I ever really saw like to speak up and defend herself from like white supremacy and transphobia the way she does literally just getting in people's faces and calling people out and calling colonizers out and taking their photos and 
I just, I'd never encountered somebody uh, move through the world the way she does. And in many ways, it's because of the intense things she's been through. And yet it's also, you can see her brilliant creative spirit. Mm. It just resonates so much with me. And I think, honestly, as much as of a good ally as I would like to think I was to black trans women before I had been with her for the last five years, I, I wasn't. And there's still a lot of things that I need to be better about and could mm-hmm. be better about. And she's very gracious about us, about me being learning how to be a better ally to her. Um, mm. and, and also how that is unique to her and not all black trans women, but also what she needs, you know. She's totally, deeply influential for me. So tell me some of the, speaking of your coupling, sure. <laughs> tell me some of the obstacles that you see that are consistent in, in this five years. Oh my, you know, when we first met, it was like, uh, it was like the hype of the Black Lives Matter movement. And like, there was just this like, there's just this sense as black folks, like, where are we going to be tomorrow? What's going to happen? Are we going to have each other? You know, like mm. we um, got bonded very quickly um, and like, these words like black trans love is wealth that we came up with literally like there was a time we were in a police station being separated by the police and those were the last words she said to me and it just like it literally became a way of life that we have existed in this black trans world together like um i don't even know if i just answered your question (laughs) no like it just that you did um what are i i just i try to I know in exp- in expanding my horizon. So I date cis men. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I have um, experienced experienced in regards to love, mm-hmm. and that comes with its own problematic. Sure. Blah 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 blah. Sure. So when I see um, trans couples flourishing, because I see some fail as well. Sure. Sure. I, I try to see. I try There's to no see. There's no perfect recipe. Yeah. No I recipe. Mean, so I try to see. What um what obstacles you're coming across That's and what, what are yeah. what are some of the things the that um how are you getting over those hurdles? Yeah, let me go to back the to the obstacles piece because you did ask me about that. And I will say there are a lot of obstacles in terms of like, you know, for a lot of us to feel affirmed. Like I dated a lot of cis women before mm-hmm. I started dating trans women. And the reality is I was attracted to women. So it wasn't a big deal to like also be with trans women. But I had a certain idea of who trans women were, how they loved or were mm. would be with me that they that I I don't know. I don't know why I would think that I couldn't have been in a partnership or relationship. So there were like a lot of stereotypes. I think there are also like a lot of assumptions and stereotypes about how like we actually would have sex together mm. or right, those kind of things in terms of like barriers people think like literally I had one of my I don't remember if my mom or my dad once said something like, um, because we want to have a child together, right? I forget one of them was like, well, don't you think that that might make her feel uncomfortable because, you know, she's a woman and she would have to... And I was like, being a woman doesn't mean you can't, like, have a child with someone or top somebody or fuck somebody or I don't know what they... I know what y'all are getting at, but I was like, that has nothing to do with being a woman. And yet, I get that because I used to internalize not bottoming or whatever because I was like, that's not what a man does. That's not what a masculine person does, you know? And whether you're with a trans person or not, but definitely with another trans person, I feel like you really unlearn those stereotypes about each Mm -hmm. other, you know, about who each other is. But other people also have stereotypes about you. So like my wife, for example, she's she's much taller than I am. Mm -hmm. 
And so when we used to walk down the street together, some guys, you know, oh, you think you can handle all that? And, you know, people have these assumptions. Right. There's this barrier. And not all trans couples have to deal with, like, being different, like, being a, a smaller guy and a bigger woman or whatever their dynamic is. But there were a lot of barriers in terms of people just, like, we would literally be out. I mean, we still go out. Not to the same degree, but, like, be out and get harassed. And like, people pull a knife on us and Damn. people say things to her. And in some ways it's like... um, I mean, this is the thing, like, the violence is not ever directed at me the same way it's directed at her. And I had to be with her, like, on the train and in all sorts of public spaces to actually understand just how vile people are to trans women, to black trans women. Yeah. And um, a big barrier, honestly, like, sometimes it would be really difficult because we would... It would be really tense after we would go through these situations. One time we had a, a bunch of boys pull a knife on us. Olympia was up the stairs before I could even get up the stairs, and we chased the, the boys. The boys ran off or whatever, except for one of them. We were like, you go get your friends, and you never do this to another trans girl, any people again, you know, kind of thing. But for a lot of people, that could be very hard to deal with, I think. Mm -hmm. And But for me as another trans person, I have a sense of, first of all, that's not her fault that she has to go through that. That's not any reason not to love her. Um, and like for me, I just need to learn how to show up to be a good ally to her. But it is challenging. The, the fact that she faces that kind of violence, sometimes we would leave some place in public and end up getting into a fight because it's overwhelming for her and mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out how to move through the space. She's dealing with transphobia and I'm trying to figure out, of course, how to support her and what she's going through, but it's not, people aren't, it's not hitting me the way they're hitting her. Like, they're not looking at me yeah. the same way, right? And um, I don't think, I think it could have really been a barrier if I had been some like patriarchal misogynistic, like I don't want to deal with a woman is going to create, I don't know, like I just, to me, I just felt like she never deserved to go through any of those things. So that's not any reason to love her any less at all. Yeah. But it, it definitely, the violence is definitely scary. And yeah. um, I don't think it's, I don't, I mean, I think it is a barrier because of how intensely it is in her life. Like when we talked about having a child, she wanted to have certain things she did in her life before we did that so that she could feel as safe as possible because she experiences so much violence by herself. And if she had a child, she would not want people to make assumptions about the child in her or put violence on her life, you know? And that's literally a barrier to us starting a family that my wife faces that like kind of level of violence, you know, right. when she navigates public space. Or and people don't space. think about that. No, people don't think about that. That that is when we when we talk about like we were talking about earlier, that things are not just jokes because it affects our lives very, very directly. And so now here we are talking about a trans couple who wants to start a family and build a family. And then they have to consider, unlike cis folks, they have to consider the violence that the mom is going to have to go through if she's with her child at a, at a train station or with whatever sure. that comes. Sure. And so I think people don't, I think people who think that this is just jokes and sure. da, 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 don't understand I mean, even the, how directly it Even the us. barrier of if, if and when we got pregnant, like I was talking about this today at the convening we were at about there's already these high rates of maternal mortality with black women, right? Of course. In, in, right, in childbirth. How the hell are they going to treat a black trans person like me and my black trans wife if right. I show up pregnant? Like, are they really going to give two fucks about us? Right. <laughs> like, exactly. when I could be like, you know, and it's scary to think, like, that that's literally a barrier to us having a family is feeling like we won't, it won't be important if something was going to happen, you right. know? And that's scary, you know? Absolutely. But I feel like we overcome that by 
I mean, one, like seeing other people around us be brave and have families and have love and have futures and communicating and really like trying to build our own like sense of who we are and our sense of who we are together so that we can really support each other when mm -hmm. things like that are happening. Um, I think another way we overcome some of these barriers has just been, I mean, there's a lot of times when it would be easy for me to just, easy for either of us to just feel like um, it's not worth it to go through this with each other and the dynamics of things we might have to deal with as a result of being trans or something. But I think we've overcome it by coming up with things like black trans loves wealth and black right. trans everything. Like we literally, and I had to do this for myself. Like I literally had to create a framework where I was everything or where, where our love was a richness. And it literally created a richness in my life when I started to like, live that out and it right. literally is a such a source of wealth in my life and it's deep because when i go back to that poem that it comes from in the poem she talks about black love being wealth but the way people would see black people growing up or experiencing they might think our lives were so terrible or so painful that we never had any love when really they don't know how beautiful and how rich our lives were as black people. And right. I feel the same way as a trans person. People are like, oh, you're terrible trans life, which it's real. There's very terrible things that I that we definitely have to go through mm -hmm. that I've been through too, but there's so many beautiful things. Yeah. Being trans and being a black trans person, like as, I don't know, I think, I don't know, I think my life is very beautiful. And I think in yeah. some ways I'm. it would be challenging for me to think it was so beautiful if I didn't have things to reaffirm that for me yeah. and people to do we're that. Just, and, and as, as we live this life, we're just trying to amplify it, really. Like even whatever way that we do it, whether it be through our art, whether it be through our activism, whether it be through our love lives and how we love and who we love, we're just trying to take those seeds of love that we actually see in our community and in our um, in our inner circle, and just amplify them out and show them to people because um, I think that is what s strings us all together. Yeah, I'm actually working on a film called Black Trans Love as Well that uh, I filmed like a couple couples like Devin and Morticia who are in New York City and Eli and I and I. Uh, um, and I'm also looking at like just how we love ourselves or love our siblings or whatever. But like, not to bring up these, I won't even name the names of people who we don't need to mention now because <laughs> their names have already been mentioned too much and they're mm -hmm. getting too much clout from our community and not doing nothing for us. But yeah. there's been a lot of, obviously a lot of violence against black trans women and girls and a lot of ways that like loving or talking about love and relationships like that we have not been in control of that narrative. And when, right. when we want to, or when black trans women have, or, or have tried to, right, these abusive people or other people, right, who have a lot of power, <laughs> still manage to control the narrative. And so to me, it's like black trans love as well, then this film is, is about taking back a sense of what that really means for us and what it means for us to love ourselves and us to love each other because truly I think only black trans people can understand that uniquely right. in a way that we can. And for other people who aren't us to understand how important it is to love us. Um, yeah, and I'm hoping that that will be out at the end of this fall yeah. or early winter, but I have really struggled with making my own 
creative work as I've just been doing mm. organizing work in New York City, like at Silver River Law Project and gotcha. through, you know, founding Black Transmedia and really my own narrative works and stories of my own life have not mm. been um, as central. But I'm hoping that I'll be able to put that narrative out because I think it's really important to talk about loving each other. Yeah. And I remember saying this to actually Kim Watson. I was like, where's the blueprint on black trans people loving each other? Like, why didn't you write the book? Where's the book? How do we do it? Like your same question is like, what do we look out for? What am I gotta be worried about? And in some ways it's the same things in any relationship you have to yeah. be worried about. And yet, because you are black and trans, you are both facing racism and you are fo both facing transphobia, let alone whatever other mm. intersections of things. And yeah. that is very unique to be in a relationship in good ways where y'all can understand like Olympia and I have so many things we can understand about what each other go through, so many ways we can learn from each other's experiences, but it's also fucked up because we don't get a break. Like we're both black no, and trans, so right. it's not like I can be like, well, I've dated white people. I used to date white people in the past, and it was like, oh, this is nice. I don't have to deal with Like they're not going through the same things, right. you know? And so there's a different dynamic, you know? But yeah. there's also, there is such a power and us loving each other, yeah. you know? And it solidifies the trust, and because knowing that we're gonna go with that together, go through that together, and I'm still in it with you, yeah. there is a certain level of trust that you don't get in other type of yeah. relationships, that I am dedicated in being consistently there for you and supportive of you and help you go through this together. Yeah. And I think for me, that's why um, being with a black person Mm -hmm. is super, super important to me. Sure. Um, you know, I'm cool with somebody else doing what they want to do else, elsewhere. But for me, that's sure. so important because that gives me just a different level. It just solidifies a different level of trust, sure. a different level of um, dedication for me that I that I need yeah. based on my insecurity yeah. that I need um, in my partnerships. I need to know that you're dedicated. Yeah. I was yeah. talking with somebody earlier about this, the, the trans-attracted language because yeah. it's a very... I know, yeah. it's a very hot topic or whatever, right? And I was like, oh, it's very interesting because, like, I would totally, I'm, I totally prefer to date black people uh, and find black people way more attractive than other people. Mm -hmm. And, like, and yet, you could also be fetishizing your own people, you know yeah. what I mean? And so, it's like, if you're from a group, like, black people loving black people is one thing. White people being like, oh, I love black people. Like, it's a different, it's a thing. different thing. So, it's like, when cis people are attracted to us, it's not even that there's anything wrong with that. It's that there's a very different power dynamic in mm -hmm. you loving us and, and a, like us as a group yeah. <laughs> than us loving us right. as a group, you yeah. know? And even in myself, I like, like, a lot of people like the like T for T language, like saying you're trans for trans is essentially saying you're not trans attracted, but like you prefer to date trans people. And that's how I've been probably like the last, 10 years of my life, like I've only dated trans people, trans men, non-binary people, trans right. women. And, um, and in many ways, like it's not even that I'm like, find them more attractive, but I kind of do find trans people more attractive than cis people. Mm. Like if I met someone and they were attractive and then they told me they were trans, I would actually find them more attractive. And in that way I'm like, oh, am I one of these, am I fetishizing my own people? Mm. As, and then it's like, no, I love my own people, and I love. And if somebody has been through this experience, that actually makes me uh, not attracted to them more, but it makes me connect to them in a different way. You know, so I think it's really interesting. Uh, of course, not our community has the mic. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so all the language about it is not 
affirming, you know, all the, the ways they're talking about it and the framing is terrible, you know, and offensive, especially at a time when there's so much violence perpetuated by black cis men. And I just think, I don't know, being able to authentically talk about who we are and loving ourselves and each other is really important. Yeah, I think so too. So, black trans love is wealth. <laughs> it is. Trans love is wealth. And I want to thank you for sharing and being so open with me and coming in our show fucking mic dropping oh my gosh no you let me take all this time and i don't even i don't even really like to hear myself talk so i'm hearing myself in these headphones i'm hoping that somebody else will find this interesting or engaging i know, I know you I know are interesting will. and engaging uh i hope this was for y'all um and if people want to find a way to get in contact with me or the work i do you can always contact black transmedia on social media, Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. Instagram, Black Transmedia through Gmail. And of course, we're going to put all the links in the bottom. Put all the links in the um, bottom. But say where they can find you. Like, um, what's the, the handle of all those things? Yeah. Oh, me specifically. I mean, I'm Sasha Alexander. You can find me on Facebook. I mean, send me a message if I don't know you because I won't accept your <laughs> friend request. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. All that glitters is not gold. Um, I run the handle on Twitter, the at Black Transmedia um, okay. handle. So if that's the way you like to get down. Um, but it's just been an honor to get to you share got this space. I do have Cash App. You What's can cash? cash App Black Transmedia, <laughs> Venmo Black underscore trans underscore media. And actually, any money that people ever send there, we uh, don't count towards our like income as an organization. We use that as an urgent fund for Black trans people's housing and expenses. Mm-hmm. All that money. All our money goes directly to black trans people, basically. But that money goes directly towards folks' needs. So if folks want to hit us up there, that's also lovely. Thank you, sis. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye, y'all. Good night, y'all. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's Plate. You can listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We'll be posting exclusive content every Thursday, so you definitely don't want to miss out. You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you'd like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. That's diamondstylz at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You going to say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, (laughs) y'all. (laughs) <laughs> Every little thing's gonna be alright